Hello, my name is Josh Hyde and I am a filmmaker and I am starting a podcast about films, filmmaking, tai chi, and anything to do with the films that I'm currently making, I have made, or I'm about to make. On this episode of American Filmmaker, we are going to discover what it takes to be an American filmmaker and how do you find stories that matter. So currently, I'm working on a feature documentary about hemp in the United States. And the goal was to follow the hemp from the field as it's harvested uh, and regulated by state regulators, and then as it goes into the final products. For the film, we interviewed people from the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Industrial Hemp Division, and we followed Evo Hemp, one of the few American hemp food companies, and as they slowly decided to create CBD products for their consumers. To do this, they partnered with Alex Whiteplume of the Ogallala Lakota Sioux that live on Pine Ridge. And they wanted to create products that were not only helpful to the consumers, but also had responsible and sustainable and kind of a conscious supply chain. So the actual sale of the product can actually go to making Pine Ridge a better place and creating a hemp industry on Pine Ridge to help create economic sustainability. You know, deciding to become a filmmaker was a slow decision, and I think I best understood what it was, um, almost like a writer or a storyteller, when I read this uh, book by Mario Vargas Llosa. The book is titled Letters to a Young Novelist, and it's a very short 100, 120-page almost novella, and then each chapter is written as if he's talking to a young aspiring novelist and then all the things uh, to to take into consideration. One thing he really puts across in the book is that most writers throughout history, as much as they were made through the rewriting of story, they were also born in a certain context. And through that context, their persistence of writing and storytelling eventually elevated their works or allowed their works to be preserved for some important cultural relevancy. And I think it's true for artists, filmmakers, musicians, storytellers, uh, anything creative. Uh, it's that perseverance. And somehow you are, are born into a context to see things a certain way. And then that way is reflected through your work. In my case, I was born to a Filipino uh, nurse who migrated to the United States and she met my father who was a he was the first of of his family to go to college and he became a doctor and so they married and had children and and when they had kids those kids were a product of these extremes east and, and west my mom's family split between Filipino and Chinese immigrants and then my dad's family, mainly German by way of Prussia. And so that formed a very unique perspective in my mind. My dad being an only child, he uh, really liked toys. And so when we were growing up, he really made sure that we had certain toys and things to kind of express our own, own intelligence. And so in that, uh, one of the first things I really remember was a satellite. And it was one of those really big devices that you buy and you have to reposition it every time you get a channel. But it kind of brought to my attention the first HBO, the first version of Cinemax, the first version of Showtime. 
and they just showed movies. And so I would always stay up late and watch movies. And then later as I grew up as a kid, there would be things like in the fourth grade, there was a uh, writing competition, or maybe it was the fifth grade. Um, and we all had to write books. And so my book was chosen as like one, one of the class winners. And it was just, you know, a kind of dragon and princess adventure. For the book, I wrote the story, and then my mom helped me bind it, and then I made the front cover with a variety of of kind of cut-out designed scrap paper that was kind of cut out to make the title, which was Oryx Adventure, and then there was a sword and a shield, and then I drew all of the pictures on the inside, and it was just this whole presentation of storytelling, and as I grew up, I was just a kid in the Midwest in a small college town, Carbondale, Illinois, and the college town had an agricultural base, and they also had a radio and television program, and so I just stayed around my hometown, and I went into college because it was the cheapest way to make films, and then that way I could work at at, at my job, which I was a busboy, and then I worked my way up to a waiter at this small Italian restaurant. You know, I, I stayed around there so that I could learn filmmaking and then just focus on the craft. And I did photography, I did filmmaking, and then I had early mentors that were really into documentary filmmaking, as well as one photography mentor, Charles Swedland. And yeah, and then from there, I realized that I had a good enough body of work to try to continue, and so a lot of my friends were moving to Chicago, and then I found my internship at Cartemquin Films. And within that internship, I stayed for 10 months for free, and the whole goal was just to, I would have to transcribe, and then I would eventually just try to watch the senior editors and producers edit this PBS series. And the PBS series followed five families through their first five to seven years as they immigrated to the United States. My job specifically was to help transcribe and kind of dialogue edit the Spanish characters. And so I had studied Spanish in high school and college, and so it really wasn't the filmmaking that I was there for, but it was my Spanish that really kind of helped me get my foot in the door. And then I would just pick up small lessons, and then in that Watching these masters, Leslie Simmer, Zach Piper, Gordon Quinn, David Simpson, Steve James work on this series, I began to realize that I, I wasn't ready. I needed more life experience in order to be a real filmmaker or in order to tell deeper stories. And regardless of what that meant, my, my chance at it to go on and try to make another movie was if I went to graduate school. So I applied to graduate school and I got into Ohio University and I wasn't going to go. Um, I, I went on a visitation and at the visitation, I realized that that this was the place where I would be able to make my next films. And so th that's what it was all about for, for me. And I could also work on all the pieces of myself as a storyteller that weren't whole. They just weren't formed yet. The pieces I wanted to work on were screenwriting, editing, directing, and then costume designing with like the theater program. And so in my first four short films, I basically worked with the theater program's costume design program, and they had a very good, almost nationally ranked costume design and like production design. So that was good. 
Uh, I studied more Spanish. I learned screenplay writing, which helped me write an award-winning short film. And then from there, I was able to write the feature version of that story. And that became my first feature film, Postales. And then for my thesis, I was trying to make Postales as a feature film, but I wasn't able to get the resources. So what I did is I filmed this documentary over two years and then I completed it. And then I used that for my thesis film. Uh, and so in that way, I was really working on long form storytelling, whether it was a documentary or a feature film with actors, with a script, with a crew, with a cast, you know, a lot more resources. And so from there, I moved to New York. And then in New York, I just decided that I was going to make my first feature. So it took me 10 years. And then after that, uh, just a hard, hard struggle. I just kind of asked myself if it was all worth it, you know, to be a storyteller and like whatever that meant, you know, a filmmaker. And I think I was kind of in a way uh, living in illusion. And so I decided to move out to Colorado and kind of be closer to family because my dad had some health issues at the time. And my mom, even though they were divorced, thought it would be good for me to be around my dad along with my brother and my sister. And so in a very unselfish move, I said, you know, this isn't about my career. This is just about my health. And so I got uh, my brother was a personal trainer, massage therapist at the time. And so he was able to give me a free gym pass and he taught me all this corrective exercise and like functional fitness to basically restore my body from just me trying to make films. And so after that, I realized I, if I didn't have my health, what was the point of making films? Like It was actually quite pointless. And then I realized that when I was on the film festival circuit with my first short film, that a lot of the people that I met and were around were not good people. And then I realized that the consciousness of the people making and distributing films wasn't what I wanted to be when I was 50 years old. So in a way, me moving to Colorado and just focusing on health, uh, and then I discovered a Tai Chi class, and then I decided just to write. So for the first four years when I came here, I just wrote my next three to five screenplays. And so now I'm going to publish, uh, I think I'm on the fourth one, I'm polishing the fourth and the fifth, but my goal is to publish through a small press all my screenplays, you know, just because I think creativity can be open source and that sometimes, you know, most people write stuff and, and it's not good enough to publish. They're just writing it to pitch and the majority of scripts don't get made. And so what I realize is people don't really believe in the work. And for me, it's really hard to put in two or three years into something and not believe. So I really have to believe in all the stories that I tell because otherwise, what's the point? You know, you're giving yourself a little peace and, you know, all this time in this movie and you hope that it will serve uh, for something more than just, you know, satiating your own illusions of what, you know, life and dreams are. So uh, I think in the end, trying to make a movie that's more than just a movie and that can speak to people now and people in the future, you know, that's, that's, that's the goal, you know, for most of you, it's hard to understand what a filmmaker is and where they come from and where they grow and develop and how eventually you might hear of them. 
for me, I'm probably one of America's underground filmmakers, and I make both documentaries and narrative feature films. Now, what does that mean? What that means is I write, I direct actors, I direct real people, I or I just try to witness uh, their own humanity while I'm filming them. I run camera, I edit, and I also help other filmmakers make their films. On this movie, American Hemp, I decided to make it because I had just finished my second feature film as a writer-director, and it was a spiritual stoner comedy that was shot on an ultra-low SAG budget in Chicago over 13 days. And so I wanted to make kind of something else that wasn't a narrative, because sometimes just to put the team together, get the financing, and then make the movie is a feat in itself, and then just distributing it, you're you're always having to kind of deal with what's happening in trend at the film festivals. And so I like to be able to make narratives and documentary films. The hemp documentary came because I'm living in Colorado and I realized that I needed to tell a story that I could tell that was happening in my backyard, a story that I would have access to, and in that way I could constantly film updates throughout one year. And so I put a couple rules around the film, and the rules were the locations had to be 6 to 10 miles around my house. I had to be able to film the characters for one year. And then the other one is that it had to be in the news cycle or something that would be in the news cycle. And so I kind of didn't think about hemp. I was thinking about a food startup movie, a kind of, you know, food industrial complex type movie. And then eventually I found Evo Hemp. And when I found Evo Hemp, I talked to them and they were definitely interested in having someone film them. And so they kind of introduced me to a lot of other people. And then I just started filming And then the deal sealer was when I did research into where the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Industrial Hemp Division was located. And when I searched the address and like how far it would be for me to get from there to my house, it was less than four miles. So I realized that this probably was a good film. I wanted to film over time because I wanted to practice the lesson from one of my early mentors, Car Tempquin Films. You know, and their method is to find people and film them over a long period of time. And through that exposure and through walking with those people and seeing those people make decisions, that that then then the message of the film emerges. So never trying to put the politics on the film and the story, but always trying to film the human and really putting the politics of the situation in the background and putting the human at the foreground and just following them through the story. That unfolds over time. And so traditionally they'll film for three to seven years sometimes. And so I knew that I could probably film for one to two years and that if I could do that, then I could start to understand the lessons of Cartemquin films and the type of storytelling And so that's what I tried to do within American Hemp. So the goal of this season is to interview all the characters that appeared in the movie because their stories could each fill a couple movies, but we had to edit the feature film down to like 70 minutes. So 
instead of just you getting 10 to 15 minutes with each character, I wanted to create a forum that the film and the film subjects and the filmmakers could speak because I think it, it really is important to understand the whole story of American hemp and what it really means for a state and for a country, especially the United States, because internationally there will, will be a ripple effect based off of the farm bill and the mass or widespread acceptance of hemp in 2019. Other countries will now be able to explore and use this as a resource. And so I think it's really exciting to know that that started in the state of Colorado. And the reason why it started in the state of Colorado is because a lot of the research for today's modern hemp plant was conducted in states that were allowed to have a recreational and a medical recreational program that also allowed hemp research and experiments. And so Colorado was one of the first states to do that. And because of that, a lot of the early genetics testing and a lot of the development of the different varieties was able to happen. So states like Colorado really put themselves in the forefront by experimenting. And as a filmmaker, I thought this was interesting not because I necessarily agree with one side or the other, but I think the creation of a new commodity or a new industry, everybody always talks about it, but to see it actually happening and to witness it, I think that's something that people should see. And I also realized that the major players in the space, Charlotte's Web, CV Sciences, which is uh, has a product called CBD Oil Plus. The larger players in the space don't want the story of American hemp to be told, whether that's on the political side or whether that's on the hemp side. Because the longer that people can operate uh, in their own way, then they can quickly make the profits they need and basically put control mechanisms in place so that as the industry develops, you know, all roads lead to them. And so what's interesting about this is you kind of see it on a state-by-state -state level. Most companies have chosen a state to go into. So if Colorado's too saturated because that kind of started in a grassroots way with the recreational and the medical marijuana programs, then let's go to the next cheapest state that will allow it. How's Kentucky? How's Tennessee? And so you've had companies that did their research globally to basically fit into these international farming standards so that when they decide to plant their hemp in Kentucky, that it will be a certified variety that's ready to go and that it'll kind of fit into all the new laws that are happening. As I was filming, I realized within the first three months who the characters or who might be the best characters to follow because their stories would lead or will hopefully lead to the grocery store shelves basically to show how the raw product or the raw commodity of hemp, hemp seeds, hemp fiber, hemp extract goes from that and goes into a product and then gets turned into a brand and then arrives on the grocery store shelves across America, like understanding the supply chain of a new commodity and, and how things are going to grow because we're just at the beginning of this stage. And, you know, when I did research into the documentary space and the hemp space, I realized that most of the documentaries were kind of made from made from a activist point of view. 
there's a way that you can make a documentary that has an activist point of view with the information because the information and the characters are on the front lines of something. But you can also make it in a way that's inclusive, that doesn't really try to uh, politicize the film in one way or the other, but just kind of shows the human reality that's unfolding. Right now, we're in the last three months of editing the documentary. I'm working with a composer who is a member of the Budos Band and was part of Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires. And we're just trying to put in a nice kind of instrumental soundtrack to the film. And then, yeah, we might come out with a soundtrack. We might not. In the past, we have come out with a soundtrack. And that's just a good way for people to experience the film or discover the film with a different medium. So if the music that you make for the film soundtrack has its own integrity, then kind of what I like to do is work with the musician to then take those bass elements and then flush the song out. And so the song can be its own entity and kind of live on its own right outside of the movie. And then that way people can listen to the song, not knowing the movie exists, and then also watch the movie knowing that they can, oh, what is that really unique song? I'd like to listen to it. And then, you know, they can buy that song. The goal of the documentary is to present it around Hemp History Month in June. And so we are finishing the film in the next three months, trying to find film festival partners to show the film at. And so right now we are just trying to find the right partners. And then if we can do a small theatrical release in June in maybe five cities, that would be nice. The greater goal of the film is to try to have the film screen in all 50 states. And if we can screen the film in every state, then the hope is that different state department of agriculture's can see the film and then get behind it. In the process of finishing this movie, we started to find an another movie and I started to put together a another team for a documentary that follows different food startups as they bring different types of food to the American grocery store shelf. The food startups see themselves as a solution to this food industrial complex that they have inherited that is America's, I guess, grocery store network. And so through kind of watching all these individual startups in Boulder and different national and different international food companies that operate out of Boulder in Colorado, and I think, you know, companies are realizing that they can play a deeper role in the solution of the globe's problems, whether it's environmental control, whether it's pollution, whether it's healthcare, whether it's food shortages. And so I think this next movie is really kind of interesting. The American Hemp documentary was also in a way designed out of a couple other movies that I helped make. And one of them was the spiritual stoner comedy, My Friend's Rubber Ducky, which was a distribution experiment. And then I was really excited to experiment with that uh, for different types of distribution. And then the other one was the Steve Madden movie, which was which I believe is on Netflix. And so the experiment with the Steve Madden movie was I was working on short content and we realized there was a documentary on this guy, but we were making short content for him. And then basically webisode series, monthly webisode series. And so we realized that there is long form content and if you could pair the long form content with an actual brick and mortar operation, 
could you help to kind of create more distribution for that movie? In the end, the experiment went. It seemed to work. And so for me, I wanted to kind of take that a little bit further. And so as opposed to a high heel shoes, I wanted to use food and something that people eat. And then I wanted to connect that to kind of a struggle happening across America's farmland. And then knowing that there would be food products that were in national grocery retail chains. And so that would be our brick and mortar connection is that the story after people watched it, they could go and take action if they wanted to support the story by going and buying hemp foods or products created from hemp. But basically the film is just the beginning and that after people watch the film, they can continue their support of American hemp by actually going and buying hemp products that might relate to them and what they need. Thank you for listening to the podcast, American Filmmaker. The song you're listening to comes from one of my film's soundtracks called My Friend's Rubber Ducky. It's a spiritual stoner comedy. We are going to be releasing some singles from the soundtracks as 45s and singles on iTunes in the coming year, hopefully by Record Store Day. Enjoy the song, and we'll see you next time on American Filmmaker with Josh Hyde.